And now my 14-year-old kid can create an app, publish it without really any difficulty to an app store and make millions of dollars if the app is really good, right? So there's no barrier. This is SaaS Scaled, the podcast where data meets action with host Armand Schrocki. Each week, Armand will be sitting down with CEOs and industry leaders from the technology sector, giving you the insight to innovate without reinventing the wheel. They'll discuss challenges, best practices, and how to identify the right metrics. So if you want to get to market faster and in a way that matters, then subscribe and join us every week as we discuss SaaS scale. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at Curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y.com. Hello, welcome to another episode of SaaS Scaled. And I'm pleased to have Brooke Lovett, CEO at Cloud Entity, with us today. So, Brooke, would you mind introducing yourself to us a little bit about, you know, how you end up joining this company and what the company does, which problems you guys are solving? Certainly. Yeah. So, my name is Brooke Lovett. My entire career has been spent in identity and access management. I started out as a developer at IBM and so ever since then, I've been creating, deploying, and sassifying various access management solutions and identity management solutions. So that's taken me through quite a journey through a few big companies like IBM and Oracle, as well as a bunch of smaller startups, one of which was actually purchased by IBM, and I ended up back there again. I ended up actually leaving IBM the most recent time and creating a small boutique consulting shop that was focused on modernization of access management platforms. So, you know, companies releasing new cloud native applications that had a need to kind of approach the zero trust problem and the high scale authorization issues associated with that needed software that was beyond what was available from IBM at the time and beyond what was available from most offerings out there. A former coworker of mine who was currently the CEO of Cloud Entity and I were actually talking about the lack of, of this being addressed in the market. And it turned out that the company that he was at, Cloud Entity, addressed this and has a product that addresses this problem. And so I was very excited about that. I sold my consulting company and I joined as the chief product officer at Cloud Entity and began to proliferate this software and develop that solution into something that I think is quite marketable today. And since then, uh, he's moved on and I became the CEO. I'm pretty pretty proud of what we've built. And I think we're, although maybe a little bit early to the market, you know, we've built quite a robust solution. What it does is it essentially uses authorization to address the modern identity problem, right? So when we think about the way that identity and access management has been addressed historically, it is these large monolithic applications. They've been built using LDAP as their, you know, directory stores. They have some pretty severe limitations around scale. You know, I've spent a lot of my life working around LDAP scalability issues and replication issues, for example. And now that we're moving to cloud native applications and breaking 
you know, we've almost moved to this like client server model again, right? Where we were doing quite a lot of processing on mobile phones, smart vehicles, smart toasters, SPAs and things like that. You're moving the actual transactional processing to this service layer where you have to perform authorization. And that authorization can be quite expensive and it has to be very, very granular because these APIs are exposed publicly. So what, what Cloud Entity does is provides you with this authorization-centric model for addressing that problem, giving you a single pane of glass to control, monitor, and, and really affect the way that applications are integrated and how an application is not just the client, but also the service edge that it uses to perform work, perform transactions. Uh, and it does it in a way that's kind of agnostic to where the identity comes from. So we don't require that customers replace their existing, you know, for example, they might be using Okta or something like that, right? We don't require that they replace that system. What we do is extend that and give them the ability to move into this more granular and dynamic authorization area, you know, enabling zero trust, enabling the much more scalable solution that's required to reach that point and doing it all the while from a SaaS platform, which previously has been unattainable due to scale limitations. And that's, that's kind of the, the leg up that we have is that our system is able to perform it orders of magnitude higher than anything else on the market and puts us in the uh, pole position for, for many of our clients. Okay. Just to educate myself and maybe some of the audience have the same question I have. Let's say I'm a SaaS company and I'm a native cloud kind of SaaS application. And my application now needs security authorization level, right? So that layer needs to be built in. Now, what are the options I have today? If I look at the market, I want to build that. Of course, one option might be I build something in-house. I don't know if that's an option. What you know, logical options that you have seen in the market that different native SaaS applications today really have? Just to understand, you know, what are the spectrums in the market? First of all, I'll, I'll point out that, you know, there really are two parts of this problem, right? Part of it is managing the identity itself and how users attach to your system. So when you're building a SaaS solution, it's important to understand that you're selling individual tenants to your customers and they need the ability to then provide a service to their customers. So this is what we call like a B2B2C or B2P2C sequence, right? Where you're essentially saying here, Here's the owner of the tenant. And now this person can go and, you know, invoke other relationships and pull in other people and create other identities to use that solution. So that alone is an issue that needs to be addressed by identity and access management software. And then secondly, once you've established those identities and those people have achieved an authorization level of some kind, say to perform a transaction or perhaps simply to access the system, you then need to be able to transmit that identity in the form of, you know, a bearer token or whatever you want to use to actually reach the APIs. So obviously our solution, as I've said, covers that whole gamut, right? We, we do both sides of that and we give you a very deep and rich capability to integrate different identity sources and form that B2B2C relationship and allow companies to manage that. Um, but there are other solutions out there that will do it, right? You can go to pretty much any identity management platform that has any flexibility with regard to delegated administration. You know, you got your, your standard Forge Rock, Ping, you know, Okta, Auth0 type solutions that will do that part of it, right? And then on the other side, for the access management at the service edge, you have a whole different set of potential market options. So there you've got companies like 
plain ID. There's an open source system called OPA, Open Policy Agent, that's become very popular there. And actually, the people that created that now have a VC-funded company called Styro, which also provides that that type of uh, sort of central management of your OPA policies. And then there's the old, you know, axiomatics and various things that come from big companies like IBM and Oracle that are sort of semi-workable these days. However, what I'm finding is that mostly companies are going to buy a solution for the client, you know, the identity side, and they're going to build their own solution for the access management side. And the reason for that is that the access management side doesn't link well with the identity side, and it becomes very, very difficult to manage. So your options are quite wide. Our biggest competitor, to be honest with you, is build it yourself. And a lot of times we end up getting customers back after eight months and $10 million wasted, where we <laughs> were able to then sell them something for a few hundred thousand dollars that would have done the pro- you know, solved the problem initially which is fine, but it slows our revenue retention, obviously. In general, you know, that those are kind of the options that you see out there. So again, we're providing something that's more holistic and gives you like a single place where you can see, for example, the audit records associated with all the different access points, not just the authorization, but also the use of that authorization token, which gives us, you know, sort of a, a leg up in that area. One of the impacts, one of the positive impacts out of this practice that you guys are doing is facilitating the data sharing, right? So if someone wants to share data with somebody else, that kind of establishing that trust relationship, so you can really go there and just do that kind of data sharing, that can be huge because that's exactly what is happening more and more that unlike, you know, maybe two decades ago that somebody could just run something in silo and applications working in silos. Nowadays, they are very well connected to each other. They need to exchange information. They need to work with each other. And the applications that do this exchange better and easier are going to win the future. So what's your take on that particular aspect of data, you know, sharing and exchanging and what you do that impacts that to facilitate and make it easier? Yeah, that's a great area for us. So so first of all, I think that the data sharing is essential, right, for growth in this area. I mean, the days of copying your identity from one place to another and, and sort of the old school, you know, 15 years ago, identity management was about asynchronous processes, taking your identity as you join a company, for example, or you sign up for a service and literally copying pieces of your identity around the Internet to various places. Right. So this is fraught with difficulty. First of all you know, controlling how that works and just management and maintenance of those asynchronous processes turned out to be very expensive, very error prone. It doesn't really work very well in general. And then secondly, people are starting to realize that they don't want their data copied all over the place because now you have all of these areas where any one of those entities is hacked or breached in some way, your your identity information is now lost or exposed, right? You know, to, to put it Bluntly, you know, data sharing across systems is essential just to gain the user's trust. So the public will not trust the system if they don't trust the IDP they're using to sign in. And the ability to use that identity to do various things across the Internet will be essential for all industries. Right. We're not just talking about banking, for example. We're talking about everything. Now, the industries where this is critical are places such as finance, right? So various places around the world, UK, Europe, Brazil now, Australia, and now we're starting to talk about things like this in the US and Canada as well, are using these standards, these regulations actually that are imposed by governments for this sharing of open data. So if you have like 
For example, in England, if you have a, a third-party processing platform to make payments and you want to be able to access my banking information at Barclays, Barclays has to, by law, in order to be a bank and operate online, provide me with a way of registering my Barclays account with that third-party processor. It does not require a previous relationship between the third party and the bank, which opens up competition in that area, and that really drives innovation. And you know, I believe that that's the right way to do this. Now, in other markets, such as the U.S., it's possible that this will emerge as more of a private relationship scenario where there's no like anchor, like the government isn't providing that. We'll say like a, what they call a trust anchor in this type of in this type of scenario. So if the government isn't providing that central directory, that central registration of the various clients and data providers and so on, then you have a situation where you're still reliant on relationships between banks and providers in order to do that sort of thing. But the fact that there is a standard for how to do it properly and securely keeps the user safe from their identity data being spread around or lost during that process. And as you're probably aware, I mean, if you were using you know, mint.com five years ago, you know, they're, they're using older technologies at that time to, to get into your account. If you use, uh, let's say, QuickBooks to run your business, in a lot of cases, in order to pull your credit card transaction in, it's actually storing your password and presenting that password to, you know, the bank in order to pull your transactions back. This is not a safe practice. And we know that, right? We've known that for years and years, storing the password, sending the password over a, you know, what they call a screen scraping transaction is not a good idea. But there wasn't previously a good way to do this. So the technologies that have emerged and what we've developed in relationship to those technologies and standards, and we actually have people, you know, participating in the definition of those standards, is really what makes that possible in a safe way, where the user maintains control over that access right, right? So they're able to revoke that authorization. They've consented to share data with this third party or with this bank or with whatever it is, and they can pull that back. And the moment they pull it back, that link ceases to exist and the user has control over how their identity is distributed, which is really where we want to get to. And this will affect healthcare, it will affect online passports. You know, I believe that decentralized identity is something that's coming in the next five or 10 years, we're all going to have vaccine records, and we're going to have passports and things that exist in these blockchain based systems. And your ability to consent to how that data is shared is essential. Right? If you don't have control over that data, then there's really no point in using the system. You know, so we don't want people going off grid. <laughs> as a result of this, right? We want them to use those systems and actually gain benefit from it. And, and how different it is when we are talking about data versus talking about API. So security authorization, is it the same techniques that you guys use when you are talking about the data sharing and data authentication and authorization? Or is it different when we are talking about API versus, because in API economy, as you know, applications not only are sharing data or transferring data or doing this kind, but they are actually sometimes need to use each other's services by calling different API functions. And that also requires that kind of authorization. Are these the same kind of techniques or totally different when we talk about data versus APIs? I wouldn't say they're totally different. I mean, the techniques used are quite the same, right? I mean, you're essentially analyzing a particular request. You're looking at the data that is requested and the data that is transmitted. And you're applying policies that simply say, based on a certain set of criteria or a certain level of risk, I'm going to prompt for MFA before I allow you to send your email address to this provider, right? 
The difference is that you're protecting two different parties. So the API provides data to the customer. So when, when, a, when a customer accesses an API, you're authorizing access to that API and you're authorizing the customer to invoke whatever transaction they're trying to perform, right? But during that transaction, the customer is also sending data to the API. And the customer's ability to consent to sending that data is essentially zero trust in the, in the other direction, right? So think of consent as zero trust for the consumer and access control as zero trust for the provider. And if we do that in a handshake manner where it happens in both directions, it makes it better for everybody because now the user controls where their data goes and the application is able to control which users access that data. And the, the case where you mentioned where there's service-to-service -service communication is very prevalent. And in 99.999% of the cases, no one's controlling that data flow, right? So if I consent to allow business one to, to see my data, they're not even legally obliged to ask me if they can send my data on to the next party. So our system is able to actually control whether or not they can do that and whether or not they can send the information on based on an authorization protocol that's analyzing who the recipient is, right? Who the, who the uh, subscribers are for that data. So the idea is that giving the user control of the full flow of their data and giving the APIs control of the full flow of a user request are two different things. You're approaching it from two different directions, but you're using the same technology to do it. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for that kind of explanation. Uh, it helps a lot, at least, you know, for me to understand better the commonality, but also the differences between when we are talking about authorization of, you know, these services and APIs versus talking about the data. Now, changing gears a little bit and get into a question that is more about really the SaaS experience. And you have been someone that you are, you know, building this and growing this SaaS business, but at the same time, you have a very good understanding of the product that what you are building, what you are working on, the market and these kind of things. Would it be fair to say that if you compare the SaaS companies as the new generation of software companies to maybe two decades ago, maybe one decade ago. You know, this is a new phenomenon, the way we are doing and cloud and everything has accelerated that kind of process. You will see more and more product-oriented CEOs in charge of software companies than before. Or you may say, I don't see why the trend should have changed or I don't see you know, that change, but, or you may see up, yeah, I'm looking around or looking at other SaaS companies I know, and I see that to be actually a new trend that all of these are very product savvy with the good understanding of the product in charge of the company and also the CEO and running and scaling. And that is, you know, what I see as a trend. And the next question is, why do you think is the reason if you see such a trend? So I, I do see that trend and I, you know, I, I wouldn't say that it's necessary that the, you know, the CEO necessarily has a technical background, but it's essential and, and quite obvious that in every scenario, whether you have a business sales type leader in the CEO's seat or not, that there's somebody next to them that's providing this technical understanding because you absolutely have to have somebody that understands how the technology works, at least at a high level, and how to scale it in order to make decisions early about how to grow your business, right? 
And I think that the reason SaaS pushes the envelope here is because these companies will not perform unless they can gather a lot of customers. And with customers come users, and with users come scale requirements, right? So the days of building a software you know, element and being able to sell it and ship a disk to somebody or whatever, however we distribute software to, to people on premise are kind of over in that, you know, if my system only performs for 100,000 users, then my SaaS company is not viable. And what's happening now, and particularly over the last four or five years, is that people are injecting massive amounts of capital into businesses that are not yet profitable under the assumption that as they gain traction, they will grow and the multipliers get bigger and bigger, right? So you don't have to develop more software for your SaaS to become more widely adopted. It simply has to be able to scale. And automation, for example, is key to that. You don't want to have to have a human pushing a button every time you get a new tenant. You know, obviously that needs to be automated. You need scalability to be elastic and automatic. You need to be able to support more load automatically. And you need to be able to move to different regions. If I get a new customer, for example, you know, we just signed up a couple of customers in Australia. We had to build our SaaS infrastructure in Sydney. And our backup is in Singapore. And, you know, when we did that, it only took two, you know, two weeks really to get it off the ground because everything is automated. And if that wasn't the case, I wouldn't be able to guarantee to these customers that, hey, if you sign up, we're going to have you off the ground and ready to go to production in three weeks, right? So the ability to make those commitments to customers requires that the people that are making the commitment understand what they're committing to, what it will cost to do it. And these are things that are technical decisions, right? They are you know, cost related. But if you don't understand the commitment that you're making, then obviously you're going to have a hard time operating and growing a business and, and making the right decisions at the right times about when to invest and when to hold back and when to wait, right? So let's assume cloud entity is growing. Now, at this stage, you are managing and understanding the product and growing, but let's say it's a multi-billion dollar business. The, the, the revenue has exploded to a very totally different scale. Now it's much, much bigger company. Do you think it's still, and we see both, of course, um, you know, I can think of examples of these multi-billion dollar companies that they have a still a very technical founder or very product-oriented founder. And then I can think of some other successful of larger scale SaaS companies with some CEOs that are in charge, but they may not necessarily be expert in the product and any exactly. So I can find both good examples of successful companies on both sides. But the question is from your perspective and based on what you just explained, would you think that it still doesn't matter how big the company is, regardless of the size and scale of the company, if there is a benefit, maybe advantages, maybe disadvantages, I don't know, on both sides, to be fair, do you see any plus or minus of the CEO at that scale, large scale businesses, SaaS companies, to still be product-oriented and technically savvy, understanding exactly the product and the offering, or, or you don't see I see advantages. I mean, really what it comes down to is what are the priorities of the company, right? If we look at something like Facebook, for example, I mean, obviously, you know, Zuckerberg is still in charge of Facebook, but don't kid yourself that he has surrounded himself with people who are very, very plugged into the corporate world, right? There's people surrounding him that know exactly what it means to grow a business, to operate a business at that kind of value. 
And, you know, similar things are happening at every large company, you know, that's operating in tech, right? Uh, you know, Apple would be another good example. I mean, you've got, you know, Steve Jobs led that company for many years from a product centric perspective and probably didn't do much of the paperwork and finance analysis of what's going to happen. So to me, it seems like really what you're talking about is who's making the final decision, who has like the actual decision making authority and what their focus is will affect the trajectory of the company, right? So if you've got a company with a really strong CTO, for example, that, you know, performs that technical analysis and makes sure that everything's going to work, you know, and, and the person who's the CEO is more focused on the dollars and cents, then that company might make more money or might grow faster or go public faster or something like that. But ultimately, that CEO is very much reliant on the technical team to keep them honest and keep things working because if it fails or it doesn't grow or it doesn't scale, nobody wins. Right. And then the other side of that would be exactly the same. If you've got a very technical CEO, right? Like someone like me, you know, I rely on our, you know, our SVP of finance and operations to cover all of our forecasting and make sure that I don't do something stupid and overspend in a certain area, for example, because, you know, I have to have that balance. And I think that Operating a business, especially in a growth pattern, is going to require investment. The investment is coming from VCs or private equity or perhaps from a public event. And in that case, you're beholden to those investors. You have to provide them with the same level of transparency, you know, transparency and the same level of detail about what's going on with the business. And whether that comes from someone who reports to the CEO or it's coming directly from the CEO is not necessarily going to change the way the optics pan out, right? But making the decisions with the priority number one being the money made versus priority number one being the technology is going to have a very slight effect on the trajectory of the company. I mean, Facebook's a great example, right? I mean, you know, obviously they're pushing the envelope from a technical perspective, but, you know, don't think that decisions aren't being made by committee and by boards of advisors <laughs> for a company like that, right? Because they obviously are. And in a different way, you know, we see that developers are playing a bigger role over time. For example, in the old days, developers were mostly just, you know, internal, taking care of the product, building it, but not really very involved in the other levels or even not understanding well on the business side. Or And then you see that more increasingly, the technical people and developers show interest, they move up, they are starting the company, they are leading companies. And even more than that, you see that developers now are the buyers. So you see even in some cases that the B2B has become B2D and your whole business is just selling to developers and the tech. So they are even are the market now. So you start your company just to sell to them. And there are many successful multi-billion dollar businesses now in this market, as we know. So. So what is your take on that? How do you see the role of this? And if that has been the trend, how do you see it can you know, play in the future? What is the trend and what do you see that can go in the future? Which direction and what scale? So I, I think that developers have become more powerful simply because they've become more autonomous, right? I mean, the tools, like if you think about 20 years ago to develop a new application and get it on the market, it was quite difficult. Like you needed a lot of investment, a lot of infrastructure. Let's say you wrote something very simple like Pac-Man or whatever, right? Like a video game. 
there had to be some physical medium with which to deliver this. You need manufacturing, you need a lot of help, right? And then along comes like the Apple App Store and the Android, you know, the Google Play Store and so on. And now my 14-year-old kid can create an app, publish it without really any difficulty to an app store and make millions of dollars if the app is really good, right? So there's no barrier. And, and this barrier being removed now provides the opportunity for a developer to become an entrepreneur and not all developers are interested in doing that. I mean, I employ people that, you know, some of them are sniveling geeks that don't want to talk to anybody. They just want to sit and write code at their computer. But we have other people that are very interested in the broader use of the product. And they generally climb up through the ranks, right? They become more important, more influential. Sometimes they become product owners. Sometimes they become architects. Sometimes they become salespeople or technical sellers, right? And the reason is because they see the technology as something that they understand and they're able to explain it to someone who doesn't care how it works, but cares about the results, right? And when you find a developer that's able to address that range of personality, like they can talk to, you know, the sniveling geek and they can go all the way up to, you know, the C-level executive that's writing the check. This person now is effectively their own entrepreneur. They are an autonomous entity. They can, if they have an idea, start a company. They can go get funding from a VC or from a private equity firm. They can, you know, they can form a company on their own. Now they need help, right? Like if you're not a finance person, then obviously you need somebody to help you put together a financing package and you need, you know, you're not going to be able to do that on your own without making mistakes. But as far as the ability to start a company or make a purchase, you know, you have full autonomy as a developer. I mean, that's where I came from. So I think that, you know, the changes that have happened just with the technology that's available and the speed with which you can, you know, get your hands on something or get something into someone else's hands has changed all of that and turned it totally around. You know, it's not, it's not like Hewlett Packard in a garage anymore. It's, you know, somebody at their laptop on the school bus publishing something you know to app to apple store like on the way to school you know and and that is a great thing i mean it really evens the playing field and it means that the people with the mind share are going to make the money to a certain degree obviously there's financers and investors and so on that are going to make sure they get paid but you know it, it really puts control in the hands of the creative and and the creative people are, are what are driving innovation and the distribution of the software as well is getting democratized. That is a big help, right? So, if, you know, that part used to be really the major part and cost of the business. And now we see still sales and marketing is costly. Still, we are not there yet to say sales and marketing is totally automated and it's very low cost that we are not there yet. But the trend has helped it. So the trend is in a way that many companies actually could bring that down. I mean, Atlassian is one of the good examples that, for example, at that size of the business you see, and again, many of these B2D companies. So that's another factor that is helping to get to that trend. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I can name a development shop that's not using Jira, right? So that's a great example of developers are the buyers. And the developers have no desire to talk to salespeople, right? They just don't, right? So there's no need for it. They can understand and consume the information they're provided and they can put their credit card in and they can buy the software. And it's SaaS. There's nobody has to come and build a mainframe in my back room in order to run the software. I'm literally putting in my credit card. It's available to me instantaneously. Even our software is like that. You can get a free trial on our system 
it's available to you in seconds. And it's the same system that I plug in for multinational corporations that are paying us millions of dollars a year to use this stuff. It's, there's no difference. The only difference is the rate limits that stop you from abusing it, right? That's, that's the only fundamental difference. So I think, you know, like you said, as soon as the developer becomes the buyer, the salesperson becomes obsolete. Now, the, the problem is, and the reason that we haven't hit that mark yet, is that in small companies, very small companies, the developer may be the buyer and have that level of autonomy. But the climate economically tends to go in cycles. And like right now, I think what I'm seeing is a lot of roll-ups and companies buying other companies. And a lot of companies are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And sometimes they get smaller and smaller. But ultimately, the buyer at a company that's worth you know, $300 million is not a developer. They are an executive with signing authority to spend X amount of money on software. And that person doesn't know or care how the technology works. They're just relying on the developer to say, yes, I need it or no, I don't. And I don't know if we'll ever get to the point where you don't need relationship sales. You know, there's, it's unlikely that the salesperson becomes a total dinosaur, right? But I think that uh, my salespeople, for example, are getting more and more technical. And, and the reason for that is simply that if they're not, they cannot participate in the conversation and they can't win. And they're learning because they want to make money. And they make commissions if they sell. So <laughs> it's better for them if they learn the technology, which brings them closer to, to being developers. And like I said, some of them are, you know, they were developers when they were younger. or And, you know, maybe they weren't great at it or they didn't like it. They didn't want to be chained to a desk and they'd rather be traveling around and talking to people. And, you know, it's, it's just a, it's a personality and a lifestyle choice. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I have seen as well that kind of trend that sales become more product specialist kind of role as well. So more and more salespeople now know more about the products and talk about that. And some of them are very consultative kind of sales that they can really be hybrid and do both, as you said. And that's the other way. Yeah. We make our salespeople do demos. <laughs> yeah, so, so if you can do it, if you can demonstrate the software, then now, now you're eating into, you know, does there need to be an SE? Not really, you know. Yeah, exactly. It's a one stop. That, that's the key. Actually, that is one of the factors that can help you to grow your business faster, better, and at more cost-effective style. And that's big. That's huge. If you look at the course of the next 10 years and all of these people you are adding, I mean, that can be totally different model from cost-effectiveness and from efficiency level that you get and capital efficiency level you get from sales and marketing. So definitely that's big, uh, a big advantage. One of the even things that sometimes I even feel that developers, just the number of developers that you can bring to a particular domain and field, it even defines the size of that market. For example, if you, you know, look at if which app market, if which mobile, for example, uh, you know, ecosystem is able to bring more developers to work on that environment that automatically defines, or even with cloud ecosystems, you know, if you think about which cloud ecosystem can bring more developers to invest their time and learn and do that, that automatically set a market size for that cloud vendor and that ecosystem, right? So, and it's true about many other products. I do remember that at one point there was a report when I was reading and it was actually going segment by segment and defining that how many developers actually in that segment exist and what is the market size for that segment 
So market size divided by developer and you can see different ranges, but at the end of the day, there is a limit there. And if that number actually is too high, that means there is a bubble there. And that's the way they were analyzing the market to see if actually there is a bubble or not, because there aren't a lot of developers to create actual real value. But if you add up all of these numbers, you get a much bigger value there that seems not to be realistic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I I think to some degree, the developers will follow the money that's being offered by employers. So if a big company decides, you know, let's say a big bank or a big, you know, tech company decides, okay, we're all in on Azure. We're going to use only Microsoft products. We've struck a deal and you have to start developing and doing all your DevOps processes using the, the Azure platform. They can then, you know, want to hire, but in a market like we've seen recently, it's difficult to get quality people. So they're paying more and more and more, right? So now you start offering really big salary increases to people if they learn or can put Azure, you know, DevOps or DevSecOps on their, on their resume. And now all of a sudden you've driven that bubble, right? You've created that bubble and you might get some high quality people in there, but you're paying them a lot of money. And now they're stuck at the company because no one wants to hire them back at a higher rate than they're already making. You know, and, and the reality of it is that the software generally is agnostic. So it's the DevOps processes, the tooling that controls the software, the CI, CD pipelines, and things like that are going to be related to the underlying infrastructure. But our software runs on any cloud. So, I mean, we happen to use AWS, for example, to run our, you know, to run our SaaS platform. But we have tons of customers that we just provide our open source Helm charts to, and they deploy our software on whatever cloud they want. Some use GCP, some use Azure, you know, some are running it in their own infrastructure. And it doesn't matter to us because we're not using centric systems, you know, or, or services from AWS to run the software, uh, you know, so, so you can you can move that around. But definitely, if I hire a DevOps engineer, they need to know how to use AWS because they're running our system and it's in AWS. So, you know, you kind of create your own little pockets. And, and clearly, there is a, a turf war there between those platform providers. That is, you know, it's interesting to watch it kind of unfold. But you know, my strategy on this personally has always been to be kind of technology agnostic, right? I don't care if you give me a Linux machine or an Apple or whatever, I'm going to be able to use it. And, you know, it's been helpful to be in that situation because it makes you comfortable in a variety of places. And it really opens up a lot of doors for what you can and can't do. I would like to ask you if you have any particular book in mind that you would like to share with the audience, something that, you know, either technically or non-technical aspect of it, but something that has been impactful and you really think that that book may benefit the audience as well. So interestingly, and it has nothing to do with computing whatsoever, I, I read a book a few years ago that had a big impact on me and the way that I operate and the way that I organize and manage companies. And it, it, it's called Sapiens. It's essentially a history of, of humankind, right? And it's a very brief walkthrough of how we came from, you know, the Paleolithic era all the way through, you know, the various industrial and agricultural revolutions and things that happened. And I think what's really interesting about it is watching how humans evolved and developed like the societal norms that we have today. And then specifically, as you reach the end of the book, it starts to talk about the organization of humans and how a company is really very much a 
an idea. It's not something physical. Like we can, you and I can both say we work, for example, for company X, but it's only an idea and that's we're both working toward a common goal. And if you think about it and you look at the amount of money spent managing people or the amount of time spent managing people, there's this threshold where a company reaches like say a hundred people, I think is about the pivot point. And at that point, you start to spend more time managing humans than you do producing productive work, right? Like actually doing something. And it's interesting that although we're more efficient at under a hundred people, most companies aspire to grow much bigger than that simply because of market share desire and, and, and revenue goals and targets. And our, our obsession with growth essentially breeds inefficiency, right? So I prefer to work and, and build companies that are that are going to be operating at their optimum in the, like the 75 to 100 person range because it seems to be more efficient and there's less management and more doing. Interesting point. Thank you very much. It was great discussion. I enjoyed it and I'm pretty sure audience will do the same, but it was great having you on the show. Great. Thank you very much. It was fun. Thank you for listening to SaaS Scaled with Arman Ishragi. For show notes and any resources mentioned in today's episode, go to sasscaled.com. If you're enjoying our show, give us a five-star review and share on LinkedIn. And be sure to subscribe for any updates on future episodes. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at Curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y dot com.